Hi, I'm Cleo, and this is the podcast in which I use my PhD in English to interpret the songs of Taylor Swift. Today, I want to talk about the song New Year's Day from Reputation, and I'm just going to start by reading the lyrics. New Year's Day by Taylor Swift. There's glitter on the floor after the party, girls carrying their shoes down in the lobby, candle wax and Polaroids on the hardwood floor. You and me from the night before, but don't read the last page. But I stay when you're lost and I'm scared and you're turning away. I want your midnights, but I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. You squeeze my hand three times in the back of the taxi. I can tell that it's going to be a long road. I'll be there if you're the toast of the town, babe, or if you strike out and you're crawling home. Don't read the last page, but I stay when it's hard or it's wrong or we're making mistakes. I want your midnights, but I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you, and I will hold on to you. Please don't ever become a stranger whose laugh I could recognize anywhere. Please don't ever become a stranger whose laugh I could recognize anywhere. There's glitter on the floor after the party, girls carrying their shoes down in the lobby, candle wax and Polaroids on the hardwood floor, you and me forevermore. Don't read the last page, but I stay when it's hard or it's wrong or we're making mistakes. I want your midnights, but I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you, and I will hold on to you. Please don't ever become a stranger. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Whose laugh I could recognize anywhere. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Please don't ever become a stranger. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. Whose laugh I could recognize anywhere. I will hold on to you. Frank Kermode argues in his well-known book, The Sense of an Ending, Studies in the Theory of Fiction, that human thinking is necessarily organized into plots, and that plots require the idea, or sense, as he calls it, of an ending. And he gives us an example, the tick-tock of a clock, or what we perceive as a clock saying tick-tock. So I'm just going to quote this at length because it's well worth knowing about. Kermode writes, We ask what the clock says, and we agree that it says tick-tock. By this fiction, we humanize it, make it talk our language. Of course, it is we who provide the fictional difference between the two sounds. Tick is our word for a physical beginning. Talk, our word for an end. Uh, And then I'm skipping a little bit. The fact that we call the second of the two related sounds talk is evidence that we use fictions to enable the end to confer organization and form on the temporal structure. The interval between the two sounds, between tick and talk, is now charged with significant duration. The clock's tick-talk I take to be a model of what we call a plot, an organization that humanizes time by giving it form. And the interval between talk and tick represents purely successive, disorganized time of the sort that we need to humanize. So Taylor has always been very interested in beginnings, in the return to beginnings. See, for example, Begin Again and The Very First Night, in both of which she sees both the beginning and the end at the same time. The end of the last relationship and the beginning of the next in one case, and the end of a relationship and its beginning at once in the other case. So New Year's Day is about anticipating an end, but 
Importantly here, not an end to the relationship, but rather the end to the recounting of the relationship, to the narrative that describes it. So she says, don't read the last page, but I stay when you're lost and I'm scared and you're turning away. I want your midnights, but I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. One ending at the end of a year turns into an occasion for considering the end of the book of Taylor's life, the last page that will reveal that I stay. So the last page that she doesn't want him to read is in some ways allied to the midnights that then go on to be followed by, you know, cleaning up bottles on New Year's Day, the next day, you know, the the next year. Uh, This idea of sort of an ending that actually is a continuation, that is not an ending at all. And I think that this is made clear through another kind of ending, the ends of lines, which reinforce this idea of kind of the refusal of chronological endings. So here I'm borrowing an approach made famous by Stanley Fish in a book on the early modern poet John Milton called Surprised by Sin, the Reader in Paradise Lost. And in this book, Fish argues that the poem's center of reference is its reader, who is also its subject. What does this mean? Well, it means that Paradise Lost is, as Fish sees it, ultimately trying to get the reader to go through mentally and emotionally and intellectually the very same trajectory as the poem's main character, whom Fish here perceives to be Adam. And as Fish says, the method is to recreate in the mind of the reader, which is finally the poem's scene, the drama of the fall, to make him fall again exactly as Adam did and with Adam's troubled clarity. And this is done by taking advantage of the fact that, as Fish points out, the reading experience takes place in time. So Milton plays with the time of reading, encouraging the reader to understand and experience one thing, one reading of a line or word, one meaning, and then to reveal that this was not the correct understanding, that this was an errant or divergent or even sinful understanding. The poem creates, as Fish argues, a split reader, one who is continually responding to two distinct sets of stimuli, the experience of individual poetic moments, and the ever-present pressure of the Christian doctrine, and who attaches these responses to warring forces within him, and is thus simultaneously the location and the observer of their struggle. So I suggest that in the field of Taylor Swift studies, this split uh, in the reader is, I think, in the desire for and the dismissal of biographical detail. So I talked a few weeks ago about what I see as the main divergence between the way that fans read uh, to try to find information in her work about Taylor's life and the way that scholars read, which is to try to understand how the work functions in itself. But I was left still thinking about the strange in-betweenness of Taylor Swift's work, which can be and often is understood by people who don't have any reference to biographical detail, who don't know or care about the actual details of Taylor Swift's life. But that seems to take on a greater richness and strangeness when the lore is filled in. For example, that, as I touched on several weeks ago now in my close reading of the 10-minute All Too Well, which it seems is the new Roland Bart because I bring it up all the time, that the moment I knew the song is telling another part of the same story as All Too Well, which only becomes fully clear with the release of the longer version in which we get this other narration of the same moment in which she expects her boyfriend to come to her birthday party, and he doesn't. And this sort of all adds to 
sort of the the mythic quality of this event that we're given these separate narrations of in these two songs and sort of that becomes this kind of pivotal moment in their relationship certainly the relationship depicted in these songs but perhaps also their actual relationship as well and i think that the interesting thing about taylor swift is that she encourages us to see all of her songs as taking place within the same universe. When the speaker of New Year's Day says that uh, that she is going to stay with this boyfriend, we're meant, I think, to reflect on the boyfriends she has not stayed with, or who have not stayed with her, who people the other songs. I still don't think that this is exactly the same as, you know, the end point of any kind of analysis being to make particular points about Taylor Swift's life, But I do think that there is this desire in terms of understanding her music to understand how she imagines the story of her life, how she sees the story of her life, and that these are all sort of glimpses into it. Anyway, what does this have to do with a Fishian reading of Taylor's work? Well, this actually still relates to the 10 minute all too well, not unsurprisingly, perhaps. But we were surprised in that song by the patriarchy, when the question was whether the utterance fuck the patriarchy belongs to the keychain or the boyfriend. Coming as it did after a line break, the keychain troubled what we thought we heard. Did that utterance in fact belong to this inanimate object? And I started thinking then about where else in Taylor's work this kind of confusion creeps in, this confusion fostered by the line breaks that seems to trouble our vision into Taylor's supposed life, into the supposed real life that the song is describing. And I quickly found another example, the song Seven from Folklore. Now, Seven is addressed to the listener and asks the listener to picture the speaker of the song. The lyrics that come up first when I Google it uh, come from Lyric Find, and these lyrics give the song um, as starting with the following lines. Please picture me in the trees. I hit my peak at seven feet. In the swing over the creek, I was too scared to jump in. The next hit, Genius Lyrics, gives us the same words, but with a crucial difference. Please picture me in the trees. I hit my peak at seven. Feet in the swing over the creek. I was too scared to jump in. Now, does Taylor Swift hit her peak at seven years or at seven feet? We've been asked to picture her. But how? How can we picture her if we don't know whether she has her feet in the swing or is seven feet in the air? The song right after it asks you to picture Taylor Swift makes that much more difficult. In fact, this idea of hitting your peak goes from metaphorical, that she hit her peak at seven, that she was at her best at seven, to literal, that the arc of the swing stopped at seven feet, that that was as far up in the air as she got. New Year's Day plays a similar, not not an identical, but a similar trick, telling you, the listener, or perhaps her lover, not to read the last page, and then telling you what happens. Don't read the last page, but I stay. What it asks you, which is not to try to know the future, is made redundant by the fact that it then tells you what the future holds. I feel like I've talked a lot recently about Taylor's 
playing with fiction, her fictionalization of her own life. And I've also gotten a lot of great listener mail about precisely that issue. So maybe we're all thinking about this in the context of the release of the All Too Well short film. And sort of, I think, you know, some fan theories that this means that she might be writing a book because of the All Too Well book uh, that she has written in that film. In fact, I see the book as an image of the short film itself, but uh, you can listen to that episode on your own time if you want. In writing this episode, though, I remembered listener Ethan's email about the song Today Was a Fairy Tale, which I read a few weeks ago, which was uh, pointing out the very interesting lines in which her life is a fairy tale from which she doesn't want to look up. Um, And listener Matt also wrote in recently asking whether I thought Taylor might ever publish a novel given her interest in telling stories and folklore and evermore. I want to talk more about that next week, but I thought I would bring that up now because of this idea of thinking about fiction um, in Taylor's work. And I do think that this interest in fiction, in telling stories about herself that are partly but not completely true, is a theme of Taylor's work, that although the work often seems to be autobiographical, it is also always thinking about the fact that it is turning real life into stories, into fiction. And I feel like blank space is such a touchstone of this podcast to the point that I actually try to avoid talking about it because I feel like I've talked about it too often. Uh, but it's it's a fascinating song to think about in terms of this very idea of trying to make sense of a sort of fictional truth or truthful fiction. And in that song, she says, Screaming, crying, perfect storms, I can make all the tables turn. Rose garden filled with thorns keep you second-guessing like, oh my god, who is she? I get drunk on jealousy, but you'll come back each time you leave, because darling, I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. That but but you'll come back, feels like the thing that tethers this idea of complete aporia before Taylor, oh my god, who is she, to remind you that she is the one you will keep coming back to. In New Year's Day, uh, the last page can hold anything, but she stays. In that but is a promise that this relationship, which is a relationship between Taylor and some guy, is also a relationship between Taylor and everyone else, Taylor and the public. Things may change, but you'll always come back to her, and she'll always come back to you. Maybe you don't know who she is, maybe you don't know what that last page is going to say, maybe you don't know what she's going to do, but she's always going to be there for you. And New Year's Day is specifically structured around this series of turns at the ends and beginnings of lines, turns made possible by the word but. You and me from the night before, but don't read the last page, but I stay when you're lost and I'm scared and you're turning away. I want your midnights, but I'll be cleaning up bottles with you on New Year's Day. The lines in themselves enact this miracle of it being a new year, but still being in an old relationship. This constant recurrence, this constant turn at the end of the the line, is a way of thinking about time, but it's also a way of thinking about memory. Hold on to the memories, they will hold on to you. You may as well treasure the past, because there is no way out of it. No way to get rid of it. You can clean up the bottles left from last night, which is also last year, but you can't let go of the memories, even if, as those of us who made it out of 2021 will attest, you probably want to. And so, 
in a way, she's going to stay even as a memory, even if she doesn't physically stay. The memory of her is still going to be holding on to you, whatever happens. Uh, I just want to take the opportunity to thank those of you who are listening, whether this is the first episode you've listened to, or you've listened from the beginning, or you're somewhere in between. A year ago, I was just starting to think about starting a podcast about Taylor Swift and trying to figure out how that would even work and what I would even have to say. Uh, It's been a weird year, but I'm very happy to have had the chance to do this very strange thing and sort of experiment with different approaches, some I admit more successful than others. Um, It's an interesting thing because there's at once so much that's been written about Taylor Swift on the internet that it's impossible to say anything original about her, and I often have thought that I I did and then sort of stumbled into some, you know, eight-year-old fan theory that says exactly the same thing. Um, And yet there's so little academic attention to her that you have to lay a lot of groundwork to interact with her on an academic basis, which is a really interesting thing because there's always a question of like, is this too academic? Is this too basic? Like, anyway. So thanks so much to those of you who have written in with encouragement and with your own ideas about Taylor Swift. Um, They've definitely been really helpful and really sort of molded my my own opinions. Um, And thanks to those of you who've contributed to the podcast either as guests or as consultants. And to all the listeners, whether you've listened to one episode or all 26. I just want to let you know with that, that this season will very soon be coming to an end. I have two more episodes planned for next week and the week after. Um, after that, the semester is starting up again, and I found that it's just too hard to try to keep the podcast going during term time. And at some point, I need to write my groundbreaking monograph in early modern agriculture, but I may well drop some bonus episodes before season three officially starts, which will probably be later this spring or early this summer, I don't know. Um, so just stay subscribed, and you will be notified. Um, thank you for listening to Studies on Taylor Swift. Please write in with questions or comments or complaints <laughs> to studiesontaylorswift at gmail.com. You're listening to Happy Strumming by Audionautics. Audionautics.